Christmas as a cultural holiday has all sorts of things that come along with its celebration. There are certain anticipations that we have and traditions that we all have. And Christmas really becomes largely about that in our minds. One of those traditions is Santa Claus. And I'm going to do my best to not contravene any parenting decisions this morning. But Santa Claus. Santa Claus is based on the story of Nicholas of Myra. Nicholas of Myra was a bishop in the early church. He was born in the year 270. And he was born to a wealthy family. As a bishop, he was known for his generosity. There are many stories of his generosity, some you might have heard about. There was one family that had three girls. And at that time, for a girl to get married, her father needed a dowry. But this man was poor. He did not have the dowry. And his daughters were being forced in a direction that would not lead to a good life for them. And they had no way of really meeting their needs. So Nicholas, hearing of this, threw some gold through their window one night. Three sacks of gold, one for each of them. Apparently it landed in their shoes. And that's how we get Christmas stockings. As they woke up and there was gold in their shoes so they could get married. Well, Nicholas was a bishop. He was a pastor in the early church. And when he was 33 years old, a new emperor took over the Roman Empire. This emperor was named Diocletian. Diocletian is known for being the emperor who was most hostile to Christianity of all the Roman emperors, worse even than Nero. And so when Diocletian takes over, he unleashes the greatest persecution of the Christian church. And as that persecution is unleashed, there's pressure. Many of the pastors are put in jail. Many of the pastors are tortured. They are forced to turn over the copies of the Bible. And many copies of the Bible were burned up so that there were no records. And Nicholas was one of those pastors. Nicholas is imprisoned by Diocletian. While he is in prison, he is tortured with red-hot pliers. He faces torture. He does not recant on the gospel like some of the other men that he was surrounded by did. And eventually he is released from prison. Diocletian passes off the scene. In the early 300s, a new emperor takes over and his name is Constantine. Constantine, this new emperor of the Roman Empire, is also not a Christian. However, at some point in a war, he claims to see a vision of the cross and says that he heard a voice say in this sign, conquer. Now, I'm not going to historically verify his claims here, but whatever happened that day, he won the battle he was fighting and he converted to Christianity. And suddenly the persecution ceased. The empire eventually became an officially Christian empire. But at the same time, there's another conflict. Now the church is not being persecuted, but the church has error in it. And that error came from a man by the name of Arius. Arius, most commonly we would know his name now in Arianism, and this is a heresy. It's the same belief that the Jehovah's Witnesses claim about Christ today. And the idea is that Jesus was the first and the greatest creation, but he was a creature. He was not God in the same sense that God, the Father, is God. He was something less. He was a creature. 
Well, this view was tearing the church apart. It was growing in influence, and the church was pretty evenly divided between the Arians and those who would go down as being Orthodox, the mainstream of Christianity. And this debate is going back and forth. Well, Constantine, having newly become emperor, is concerned about his empire being torn apart by a theological controversy. So he calls a meeting, which we know today as the Council of Nicaea. In 325, the Council of Nicaea is convened. Nicholas is 55 years old at this time. This is a man with scars on his body from being tortured with red-hot players. And he is among the 300 and some people who gather in Nicaea for this council to discuss the doctrine of the Trinity. Is Jesus begotten for eternity or is he created at a point in time? Is Jesus less than the Father? And the council gets together and they're discussing. Nicholas is sitting there. Arius is sitting there. Arius gets up to present his perspective. He had a little ditty he liked to repeat. He would say, there was a time when he was not, referring to Jesus. There was a time when Jesus did not exist. And he was up and he was preaching. And Nicholas, this man who had given his life to the cause of Christ, a man who had given his body to the cause of Christ in a way we don't even understand today, who had faced torture for the cause of Christ, here's Arius preaching, and he gets up out of his chair, and he goes to where Arius is, and he slaps him in the face in front of the council of Nicaea. If you are such a heretic that Santa Claus feels compelled to slap you in the face, <laughs> you have a problem. So St. Nicholas is so focused on this doctrine of the deity of Christ, this doctrine that Jesus is God completely, begotten, not made, that he goes up and he punches Arius right in the face. So, if you ever want to identify whether the Santa Claus at the mall is the real Santa Claus or not, just go up to him and ask him, do you believe that Jesus is homoousia or homoousia? Is he of the same substance as the Father or a similar substance? If Santa Claus cannot answer that question, he's not the real Santa Claus. All right, the simple identifier. What is this doctrine that is so important that it makes Santa Claus punch Arius in the face? What doctrine could this be? It's that Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. See the humanity of Jesus in the account of the birth of Jesus. Not going to read the whole account. We'll have that read in just a few minutes. But we're all familiar with the account of Jesus' birth. And in this account, we see a great amount of detail given to us about how and when and why and where Jesus was born. Detail that's lacking from other birth narratives in the Bible. There are several birth narratives in the Bible, but none of them flesh out the detail quite as much as the story of Jesus. We hear about Adam's creation, but we don't get nearly as much detail there. Isaac, Jacob and Esau, Moses, Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist, all these men, their births are recorded to one extent or another. But Jesus' birth is recorded in meticulous detail with dates and location and names and identities. There is this abundance of details. Why 
are there details about how Jesus was conceived, about when it happened, when Caesar Augustus required a census, about where in Nazareth and Bethlehem in a manger, about who Jesus was, who Mary and Joseph were, genealogies, the first chapter of Matthew, this long genealogy, and Luke, another genealogy, these long lists of names that when you're reading through the Bible, you get to and you're like, well, I can skip those because I can't follow that anyway, and I'm certainly not going to make application. What's the point of those genealogies, though? It's to anchor Jesus in history. He is a man descended from men. He is a human. The Christmas story anchors Jesus in humanity. The Christmas story gives us witnesses. We have shepherds. We have angels. We have wise men. We have Simeon. We have Anna, Mary, and Joseph, Elizabeth. All of these different stories surrounding the birth of Jesus give us an abundance of witnesses who saw this special baby. By including all of this detail, the Christmas story has a great deal of credibility. In fact, it would be foolhardy to deny the existence of Jesus. It would even be foolhardy to deny the resurrection of Jesus unless you're operating from the conclusion that a resurrection cannot happen. In fact, you may have, have a conversation with someone that goes something like this. A person who does not believe the Bible says resurrection stories are not true. This cannot be true. People don't rise from the dead. You might respond, well, how do you know that? They respond, because no one has ever risen from the dead. So I know that resurrection stories aren't true. Well, let me tell you a story about someone who rose from the dead. Oh, but that story can't be true because people don't rise from the dead. It's a circular argument. The resurrection is one of the most well-attested events of history. If we had as many sources attesting to the life of Julius Caesar as we did to the resurrection, historians would be in heaven learning about that. The resurrection, the life of Christ is incredibly well documented and that gives it credibility, but it also emphasizes Jesus' humanity. He is born, he does not appear. Jesus doesn't suddenly rise up from the ground to lead his disciples. Jesus doesn't suddenly just magically appear. Jesus is born. He experienced the trauma of childbirth. There was a woman who desperately wanted him to be born for the last month of her pregnancy. There was a man who worried about providing for this little baby. He was fully man. He was a human. He gives us assurance of his humanity. Why do we need this? Why do we need Jesus to be a man? Why is it so important that these stories anchor Jesus in humanity? Because we need him. We need a high priest who can be touched by our infirmities. We need someone who can bear the weight of sin. God cannot bear the weight of sin because he is completely holy. Jesus, as a man, becomes to earth, and as a human, he is different than the Father. He brings into himself humanity. He takes upon himself the form of a servant. And because he is man, he can bear God's wrath in a way that God, fully God, without humanity, cannot. He bears our sins. He faces God's wrath. Because he is a man.
However, at the same time, this Jesus who comes in a very human form is also fully God. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Verse number 15. Colossians 1, 15. Actually, we'll start at 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. So here's what's happening. We start off, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And now Paul is going to go off on kind of a tangent, proclaiming the glory of this beloved son, describing the beloved son. He is the image, the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So this Jesus is the very image of God. When we look at him, we see God because he is God, the firstborn of all creation. This actually becomes a significant phrase in that Arian controversy. If Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, then he must have been born at a point in time. He became God at a point in time. But firstborn here is talking primarily about the primacy of Jesus. He is firstborn in the sense of the Old Testament. The firstborn got all of the inheritance. He is God. He receives all that belongs to God. For by him all things were created. He is God because he is the creator. In heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is the means of creation. It comes through him. He is the one who creates, but he is also the object. He is the one that creation is for. Creation is for the glory of God, and that includes Jesus. That includes the Son, who is glorified by the creation just as the Father, just as the Spirit. He makes visible what we cannot see. He creates Yet he is different from creation. John says, For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or, pardon me, this is Colossians, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. But Paul goes on, He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. So Jesus holds the world together. The Son holds the world together. A work of God and God alone. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is resurrected. He comes from the dead and he is before all things. And here, verse number 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Everything that is God is in the Son. The Son is fully and completely God through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus, fully God. He is not a part of deity, nor is he part deity. He is fully and completely God. The things that can be said about the Godhead can be said about the Son. He is God, yet he is man. 
And we cannot, in our finite minds, so much less than God, comprehend exactly how that works. We try and illustrate it, and we end up being heretics on accident. We try to grasp it. We try to reach our minds around it. But fundamental to that is us saying, God needs to measure up to my standards. I have to understand God for him to exist as he claims to exist. That's not the way it works. He's God. He is infinitely greater than He is majestic. He is holy. He is unapproachable. We cannot rise up to his level. We cannot grasp him. We cannot put him into our box. We cannot fit him into our categories. Yet, he came to us. We cannot come to him, but he has come to us. And in Jesus, in the Son, he dwells among us in a body. And look what he accomplishes through that. Verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Because of our sin and because of God's holiness, there was an incrossable chasm between us. We could not cross it, which is why these verses describe us as alienated, as hostile. We can't cross the gulf, but Jesus, but the Son has reconciled us in his body of flesh. And Christmas, the incarnation, that word meaning into flesh, God becomes man. God reaches out from heaven and in that little manger, as Mary holds Jesus, she holds God in her hands. That which could not be approached, she holds. That which cannot be approached, she puts over her shoulder and burps after his meal. That which cannot be approached becomes needy. The uncreated becomes a creature. And Christmas is the work where God bridges a gap that we cannot bridge. God crosses chasm which we cannot cross. We cannot get from here to there, but he came from there to here. He has come to reconcile us who are aliens and enemies. And the result is that we are presented holy and blameless and above reproach. Christmas is God reaching down. Christmas is God doing what we cannot do coming to earth in flesh, which we can touch with our hands, which we know has experienced what we have experienced, who bears temptation but bears it differently than us because he bears it to completion. The temptation ends and Jesus does not fail. Who feels sickness, who feels pain, who feels doubt, who wonders. And we can't understand all the mysteries of God becoming man. Yet, we take God's word where he describes it, and in faith, we rejoice that he has become man. So at Christmas, we must live above cultural traditions of Christmas. Christmas is about something significant enough that Santa Claus punched a dude in the face. Christmas matters because Jesus, the Son of God, has 
become man. So this Christmas, trust him for his work of reconciliation. Rest solely in the Son of God become flesh for your only hope of ever entering relationship with God. He is unapproachable, yet he has approached us. Celebrate the Son, fully man, fully God, our only hope for reconciliation. And we celebrate him this morning and tomorrow. We celebrate him throughout our entire year. And then an application for Christians. This passage makes it clear. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. But then there's also a call for us. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and fast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So we, as we hear the Christmas story, we, as we recognize that the unapproachable God approached man, as we recognize that the Son took on flesh and suffered like us, was touched with infirmities like us, we then must continue. We must not turn from our hope in the gospel. We must not be distracted by every other hope, by every other confidence that confronts us. We must not be distracted by the hope of our finances, by the hope of our family, by the hope of our health. All of these things that we might depend on for true joy, they do not satisfy. Only God become flesh who reconciles us can satisfy. When Nicholas of Myra died. There's a 14-year-old boy by the name of Gregory Nazianzus. The Trinitarian controversy didn't stop at the First Council of Nicaea. In fact, it hasn't stopped today, has it? But as far as being in the church, that controversy continued on. The Nicene Creed, which we use today, didn't come about until the 390s. So there's another 70 years of controversy. And one of the foremost writers of that day was this young man, Gregory Nazianzus, who was 14 when Nicholas dies. They probably did not know each other. But Gregory wrote this. He was a preacher. He was the foremost orator of the time. He's gone down as Gregory the theologian because he wrote so clearly and excellently about the doctrine of God. I read this which is the conclusion of one of his sermons on this topic. He was baptized as a man, but he remitted sins as God. He was tempted as a man, but he conquered as God. Yea, he bids us be of good cheer, for he has overcome the world. He hungered, but he fed thousands. Yea, he is the bread that gives life, and that is of heaven. He thirsted, but he cried, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Yea, he promised that fountains should flow from them that believe. He was wearied, but he is the rest of them that are weary and heavy laden. He was heavy with sleep, but he walked lightly over the sea. He rebuked the winds. He made Peter light as he began to sink. He pays tribute, but it is out of a fish. Yea, he is the king of those who demanded it. He is called a Samaritan and a demoniac, 
but he saves the Samaritan that came down from Jerusalem and fell among thieves. The demons acknowledge him, and he drives out demons and sinks in the sea legions of foul spirits and sees the prince of the demons falling like lightning. He is stoned, but is not taken. He prays, but he hears prayer. He weeps, but he causes tears to cease. He asks where Lazarus was laid, for he was man. But he raises Lazarus, for he was God. He is sold and very cheap, for it is only 30 pieces of silver, but he redeems the world, and that at a great price, for the price was his own blood. As a sheep, he is led to the slaughter, but he is the shepherd of Israel, and now of the whole world also. As a lamb, he is silent, yet he is the word, and is proclaimed by the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He is bruised and wounded, but he heals every disease and every infirmity. He is lifted up and nailed to the tree, but by the tree of life he restores us. Yea, he saves even the robber crucified with him. Yea, he wrapped the visible world in darkness. He has given vinegar to drink mingled with gall. Who? He who turned the water into wine, who is the destroyer of the bitter taste, who is sweetness and altogether desire. He lays down his life, but he has power to take it again. And the veil is rent, for the mysterious doors of heaven are opened, the rocks are cleft, the dead arise. He dies, but he gives life, and by his death destroys death. He is buried, but he rises again. He goes down into death, but he brings up the souls. He ascends to heaven and shall come again to judge the quick and the dead, and to put the, to the test such words as yours. If the one give you a starting point for your error, let the others put an end to it. If Jesus is all of this humanness, let us not forget he is also all of divinity. He was touched with our infirmities, yet he heals us from them. It's almost a contradiction, right? It's a paradox. How can God in all his power become man in all of his weakness? How can we hear that Jesus grew in wisdom? How does the Son of God, who is wisdom personified, grow in wisdom? I can't answer that question, but I can trust that the word which reveals it to me is right, and that he who we could not reach, reached down to us. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege we have to have a God who is touched by our infirmities. What a treasure we have in the Son made flesh. May we not forget this. Not on Christmas, not in January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, or November, Lord. Never may we leave the celebration of you reaching out to us when we could not reach out to you. Amen.